In early Denver, newspapers were the media. At the end of the day, newspapermen gathered to socialize, play some poker, shoot some pool. They organized their own private club, the Denver Press Club. They had a clubhouse built, which still stands today and still functions as a social club and event center and celebrates the rich history of Denver's news reporters and newsmakers, which now includes electronic journalists and the fields of public relations and advertising. The Denver Press Club is the oldest continually operating press club in the country and sponsors and hosts a variety of entertaining and informative programs and events. This edition of the Denver Press Club is sponsored by the Denver Press Club and the Colorado Chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists. Hello and welcome to another book beat from the Denver Press Club. My name is Bruce Goldberg, board president of the club. And this series is presented to you by the Denver Press Club and by the Colorado Chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists. My guest tonight is longtime club member, former club president, a renovator in chief back in around 2000, 2001, former Denver Post reporter, Mike McPhee, who uh, uh, we've known each other forever. And what a great new book he has coming out, Dana Crawford, 50 Years Saving the Soul of a City. And this is just so filled with great details about Denver history, the building that's gone on, and of course, a wonderful biography of Dana Crawford. Welcome, Mike. Thank you. And congratulations on, on getting this done. Thank uh, you. Let, me, let me ask you, what, what was the most surprising thing you learned in writing this book? How difficult it is to finish a book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the finish line is a long way away. Yeah. I think this is the hardest project I've ever attempted in my career of writing. Mm -hmm. So, but uh, I'm very proud of it now. It turned out nicely and turned out much better than I imagined. How long did it take to write this? <laughs> I have a solid three and a half years wow. in on it. I'm not, um, uh, I'm not the fastest when I'm working alone. I spent uh, many, many years with Associated Press and um, uh, many more in daily journalism. And I work, I, I learned about the, I learned this about myself, is I do very well in a structured environment with deadlines, with an editor yelling at me, and I, I can hit deadlines. But working alone is a different animal. Um, and I rented various offices and finally ended up in the basement of my house. It just worked out the best, the most convenient, and I got the most done down in the basement. But it was a struggle to discipline myself and to grind every day. You know, if you do another book, you may want to copy the NFL teams and have noise piped in, an editor yelling at you. Yeah, um, Every 30 I get seconds. what you said. Yeah. Uh, it just, it, it showed me that I do very well in a structure. Yeah. I'm kind of loose on my own. Okay. <laughs> so what made you decide to write this book? Um, I had this idea about doing a biography of Dana Crawford while I was at the Denver Post. She's just a terrific woman, a fascinating person, and her contributions to the city are enormous. I thought it would be a very good story. So in her, uh, a couple of years before I retired, I approached Dana with the idea of writing a book. And she said, nope, 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 won't do it. She said, my mother raised me that a woman is in the papers only three times in her life, for birth, marriage, and death. And I said, well, Dana, you've made a shambles of, of that. You're probably <laughs> the most written about woman in Colorado. And she said, no, I won't do it. So for two years, I mentioned it to her gently. And finally, it, my time to leave the post came, and she still wouldn't do it. 
So I left and started to write a book. My grandfather was an architect in Denver, Jacques Benedict. He did a number of prominent buildings. He did the Sports Authority. Uh, it was a car dealership. Um, he did the Wash Park Boat Pavilion, St. Thomas Chapel, and a number of lovely homes. Uh, and nothing's ever been written about him. So I started off uh, on that, and about nine months into the book, Dana called and said, would you still be interested in doing that book on me? And I said, sure. And so we met and agreed, and I pushed aside Benedict and started working on her. What made her change her mind? Well, she's pretty coy. Um, she wouldn't say anything to me when I asked her that. Finally, her oldest son, Jack, said it's for the grandkids. And um, we were recently on Colorado Public Radio, and she told Ryan Warner that she had been approached by several other people to, to write a book about her. And her primary consideration of the book about her is that it had to be fun. And we actually wrote a legal contract, uh, and the word fun is all through the contract. And she thought, I guess, um, that I could make it fun. I mean, we get along very well. And so she asked me if I would write it, and I said, sure. Okay. But it wasn't always fun, as you've told me. That well, I mean, you know, prying into somebody's closets for three years, and um, you're bound to uncover some dirty laundry and stuff that she didn't like. And also, it was interesting to me um, how painful her career has been for her. Uh, she started crying a number of times, recalling tight spots that she got into, or losses or failures, um, uh, political battles. She, she thoroughly enjoyed her career, and she's very well aware of the impact she's had on the city. But it, I can say, at, after that process, it came to her with a cost. It was hard. Okay. What is she proudest of, of all the things she's been involved in? Is there one that stands out in her That's mind? That's a good question. Um, at the very end of the book, I tried to sum up her legacy. And I called 15 people um, and got 15 answers. It was like fly fishing. Everybody had an opinion. Um, and her son, Duke, her youngest son, said that, uh, wait, wait a minute, I'm sorry. Um, now, I think Bill Mosier, I'm, I'm sorry, it, I'm a little confused, but somebody said her legacy is going to be Larimer Square, mm -hmm. which she did 50 years ago this summer. And so I asked her son, Duke, her youngest son, and he said her legacy definitely would be Union Station, which she just completed a year ago. And I asked Dana, what do you think is the most significant thing you did? And she said, introducing Denver to loft living. Of, uh, she was the first person in Denver to purchase an old abandoned warehouse and convert it into residential living. And the trend had started in New York and Boston. And she's nationally known and was traveling considerably. And she learned of this trend and liked it and brought it to Denver. So she said, getting people to live in Lodo, particularly in the lofts, would be her legacy. So that's three different legacies right off the bat. The argument could be made for any of them. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, the last chapter, I rewrote and rewrote. I just didn't feel right. And about the fifth rewrite, it came to me. And I, I listed the different answers that I got from people. 
And then I said on my own that no collection of buildings will be her legacy. Her legacy will be her vision and her leadership of taking Denver into a new era. And there are lots of individual buildings, but overall, her vision is, is her strength. And I wonder what downtown Denver would look like if there had been no Dana Crawford. Well, um, I interviewed John Hickenlooper, the governor, and he's quick to say that if it wasn't for Dana, all the old buildings below Larimer Street, from Larimer down to Union Station, would have been pushed over. He strongly believes that Denver Urban Renewal Authority was on a rampage to flatten the uh, old buildings and develop new. And it was Dana who saw the value of our past, of our heritage, and of creating new economic life for some of these older buildings. I want to just pause. If you have any questions, please feel free to raise your hand. I've got plenty more left, but I would love the audience to participate. Anything yet? We'll come back to you. Okay. What are, you know, she was a powerful businesswoman at a time when women were not really welcomed in business at the beginning, right? Her, her, her strength is unbelievable. And the, I, I knew of it when I started, but I was just in awe when I got into it. She grew up in Kansas, in Salina, Kansas. Her father was a car dealership, owned a dealership, and eventually got the first um, dealership in Kansas for Chris Craft motorboats. Okay. on a new reservoir that was built. And so she grew up middle class working and went to a, a junior college, Monticello, um, in Illinois, then finished two years at Kansas University. And then she, she really is a funny person. She has a very good sense of humor. I put her at the top of the chapter that she received a BA from Kansas, but no MRS. In other words, she wasn't, nobody wanted to marry her. So she decided to go to graduate school and got accepted into Radcliffe, which had a business uh, program similar to Harvard's MBA, but they wouldn't allow women to go to Harvard. Um, so she went out there and said she learned how to drink martinis and um, came back and went to Denver and started in PR. And she's got a great story about her public relations work. Um, uh, for those of you who have been in Denver for a while, you might remember the Zeckendorf Plaza at 16th and Court. Uh, Bill Zeckendorf was a big, blustery, Donald Trump-type guy in New York in the 50s. And he thought Denver was lagging behind after World War II. So he brought some money out here and built a building at 17th and Broadway, just east of the Brown Palace, the Mile High Center. Yeah. And he had a young architect on that named I.M. Pei. And that was Pei's first building. And that went very well. And so Zeckendorf owned the land at 16th and Court. There had been a huge courthouse um, building, and a beautiful building. And we have a photo of it in the book um, that had been pushed over. And the land just sat fallow. So Zeckendorf bought it and uh, eventually built um, the, the buildings that are there now, uh, which on the west side was, became the May DNF department okay. store. And on the, on the east side, it's now the Sheridan Hotel, but it was a 700-room yeah. Hilton. And uh, Dana, through Bill Kostka's PR agency, became Zeckendorf's PR person in Denver. And he needed one, because he loved controversy, and he loved the newspapers. And uh, he was constantly, like Trump, I mean, the, the parallels are very good. They started digging the foundation for the hotel and hit gravel, which is uh, expensive and important in construction. 
for cement and that. And Zeckendorf said, just dig as deep as you need to go and keep all the gravel. We'll save money by using the gravel down there. So they dug way down. And there's a three-story, three-level parking garage underneath the hotel. And typical Zeckendorf and typical Dana, Zeckendorf hit gold <laughs> digging this foundation. And it was all over the front page of the papers. And Mayor Quig Newton immediately demanded that that gold be returned to the city. It belonged to the city. And Zeckendorf said, nah. And, uh, you know, back and forth. And everybody was loving all the, the tussle. So who wound up with the gold? Well, um, I, I moved on. And then a friend of mine, Peter Dominic, died. And I went to his estate sale. And he had an autobiography by Zeckendorf. And I bought it for a dollar and read it. And in his autobiography, Zeckendorf admitted that the gold was a small nugget. And that was it. <laughs> and he gave it to his wife, who cut it in half and made a pair of cufflinks for him. Oh, and that was the extent nice. of the. <laughs> but this is the kind of stuff that was going on. And Dana was getting uh, in, right in the middle of all of this stuff. So it was fun. Oh. Yeah. What, what were, besides being a woman in a male-dominated industry, what were some of the biggest obstacles she had to overcome in her real estate life? Well, um, she, she said that um, a number of factors influenced her, but particularly living in New England. She loved these New England villages, and each of them had a town square, a gathering place for the, for the folk to chat or socialize or whatever. And Denver lacked that, and she wanted to create that. And, and that was the reason for her starting this quest. Um, but when she settled on the 1400 block of Larimer, she had no experience in real estate. She had no money, and the Urban Renewal Authority had, had uh, blocked out Larimer Street to be pushed over to build new. So she joined a very misogynistic industry with no experience. She had no money, no financial backing, and she had to fight the fever that was going on nationally to push over old buildings. And she tackled all three of them beautifully. How did she obtain funding? She, uh, she's persuasive, let me tell you. <laughs> she went down, she hired a photographer, Jim, Jim Milmo, and they took photos of the 1400 block. And she created a little model. She built it herself. And um, uh, she had this model in her house and invited some friends over for a dinner party and showed them this model, which was her goal. And they got interested, and she brought them around. Um, and and um, it was a, it's a very interesting story how to acquire or how to purchase an entire block of buildings. Because if you buy building A and the owner of building B hears what your plan is, his or her price is going to go way up. So she set up all these fake corporations with no re links between them, so that nobody would get the idea that it was the same person buying the entire block. And, and she got about 80% of the block under contract. Some uh, still wouldn't uh, sell, but they agreed to go along with her and her plans. Wasn't the last holdout that messy store, that Crest place, was that what it was called? <laughs> Crest Distributing, oh, Joe yeah. Replin. Yeah. Joe was a feisty little guy, I knew him. And um, he had an office supply store. Um, it's next door to the market, to the, to the uh, south. And I can't remember what's in there right now. But Joe was the primary holdout. And he just wouldn't do it. And Dana did anything she could to get him to sell. And he just wouldn't. And crotchety guy bent over. And um, she came in and said, well, OK, at least let me paint your building 
for a hundred bucks. And he said, no, I can get it done cheaper. Get out of here. <laughs> it went on and on. And Joe owned about eight buildings in downtown Denver, and all of them were empty. Uh, where he got all his money, I don't know. But it was, it's a funny story. And finally, he died um, in the late 90s. OK, so, OK. Yeah. The questions? Yes. Yeah, um, well, clearly, she's an amazing businesswoman. Did you discover that she had much sensitivity to architecture? Or oh, a tremendous sensitivity. Um, she, she's got a very good eye, really good eye. Or also for finding people to renovate and build new. Well, that's an interesting question um, because other factors come into play. Her appreciation of buildings is superb. Her management style tends to ruffle feathers. Uh, she went through five architects. So that kind of says it quickly. Um, but um, she's a real stickler for detail and is determined. I, I have a, a wonderful interview later on in the book with her office manager. And I said, what is Dana's strength? And she said her type A personality. That once she sets her mind on doing something, she'll get it done. And I said, OK, what's her weakness? Her type A personality. <laughs> because you're going to do it my way. Yeah. And uh, I thought that summed it up pretty well. Dan. I had heard early on that she could not get started with First National Bank, Colorado National, Bank of Denver, none of the local banks. And she ultimately went back to New York and got their financing through some New York life or some. Is that what you're in? It's absolutely true. Um, she got private investors for the acquisition money to purchase the buildings or to gain control of the buildings. But the renovation and construction money, nobody would touch her. And one of her chief investors was a vice president at Colorado National Bank, Reich Wooten. And even Reich couldn't convince um, Bruce Rockwell and the others at Colorado National to loan a dime on any of this. And they went to Central Bank and Trust, which was at 15th and Lawrence. And uh, she just couldn't get money. They pieced together. They sold shares. They, they really cobbled it. And finally, her husband, John Crawford, uh, was able to work out a deal with New York General Life Insurance, or New York Life Insurance. I forget the exact name. But they finally provided long-term financing of $2 million. It was a struggle. More questions before I move on? OK. The, the level of detail in this book is amazing. Oh, it's like, Thank I mean, you. you put the reader right there, you know, good. watching her grow up, watching her start dating, watching her you know, do this and that. And it, it given, I mean, how many people did you interview? How much time did you spend interviewing Dana? Well, that's, um, if you ask the editors I've had in the paper, that's my primary fault, is I'll always make that last phone call. Some reporters will turn copy in at 2 in the afternoon, but I've got to make that last call. And I go racing in at 6.30 with the final call. And so I interviewed Dana 35 times wow. for an hour and a half, uh, tape recorded. And I did all my own transcription, which uh, is hard. But it, it helps you, I believe. It's worth the effort, because you start to digest the material. I interviewed a total of about 75 people on the outside, some briefly, some in intensely. So over 100 interviews. That's, that's extraordinary. That's Thanks. OK. Um, and if you see the book, you'll see the results. Um, it's, it's, he's not up here. He's really dug down into the details and made you feel like you know Dana very well. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. What's that? Was she happy with the result? So, any other questions? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
She, she's come around. Um, to, to put it politely, in, with the cameras on, she's a control freak. And, um, and, you know, that's how she got things done. It's a fascinating study of human behavior. Um, and I have lots of quotes where um, it's hard to accomplish what she accomplished without being a control freak. You can't let things slide. You can't listen to everybody's suggestions. You've got to go forward on your own. And she has spent 50 years uh, fighting city hall, fighting banks, fighting tenants who didn't have the money. She became known as the dragon lady in the newspapers. Um, and she suffered a lot. Um, but she, she got to where she wanted to, to go. So when the book came around, she wanted a little more. We had a contract. And she had the right for, to review for factual accuracy. But she had no editorial control. She couldn't tell me who to interview or who not to interview or uh, that. And she crushed that boundary <laughs> quickly. <laughs> and I, I listened, and uh, a lot of the rewrite came from her concerns. But uh, there weren't quite as many as she wanted. And we, had, we, had, we sideswiped a couple of times. Um, but eventually, it's all been worked out. And we're on very good terms now. I have ultimate respect for her. Well, there's a great picture of the two of you standing together at the big opening party at Union Station. Yeah. And, and someone got you both smiling. We had the, the book launch last week at Union Station. And a couple hundred people showed up for that. And Dana came and signed books and answered questions and that. And we got along very well. And, I hadn't seen her for a little bit, um, but we're, we're OK. It, um, but it was, um, it was a rocky road. <laughs> <laughs> Dan? How old is Dana? She's 84. And she has 11 projects on her desk. She just won't slow down. And these projects are fascinating. I, I don't know if I'm supposed to keep this under wraps or. Um, well, I don't want to. I know I, my inclination is to talk, but I don't want to violate her. She's involved in a very interesting project up in Idaho Springs. And that's all I'm going to say because I don't want to give the details away. But uh, if she pulls this one off, it's cool. OK. All right. More questions? OK. Um, did she have, who are her rivals or main rivals in business, or, or were there any? Well, um, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, the, the inner circle of developers in Denver is pretty small. And I think uh, in order to survive, they get along. They make a point of getting along. Um, and she's very supportive of developers who can't do, or who can do what she can't do. And she'll go to, to, to war to win a, a contract. Um, they had a, an intense battle to win the right to redevelop Union Station um, against East-West. And it was, it was hard fought. But I think that the circle of, of developers gets along pretty well. Trammell Crow, Bill Mosier, yeah. these people, they, they all, they can have a drink afterward. That's my, they might be laughing listening to this, but that's and, my impression. And Union Station looks wonderful today. Yeah, how, how many people have they seen it? Terrific job. Well, take a look, Dan. Yeah, I encourage anybody who hasn't been to Union Station yeah. to go down and see how good a renovation project can turn out. Yeah. It's beautiful. Dan. I was just down there last week, and uh, I asked about rooms at the Crawford Hotel. 
they start at $300 a night and go to $600 a night. And they are totally booked up for the month of October and beyond. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's it, it, reporters certainly can't afford that. Yeah. Right? Yeah, let Without us know an what it looks account. like. <laughs> but uh, it's the economics. And Walter Eisenberg, who runs the hotel with his sage hospitality, is very good at what he does. Um, so, luckily, I was comped a room the night before opening, so I didn't have to pay 600 <laughs> And, you know, you mentioned about renting offices on occasion. You had one in Union Station. Right. Were you writing some of the book in Union Station itself? I was, I was attempting. Yeah. I was shaping it in Union Station. And um, I knew, they told me that uh, I was going to have to get out in nine months or something like yeah. that. So I did quite a bit of work. A little there. irony there. Yeah. yeah. I saw a hand go up over here. Nancy, hi. Uh, is, is the outside sprinkler system still, still going? I was down there. What? I'm sorry? The outside, you know, where the sprinklers, the water. The fountains. Yeah. I, I was down there a couple of weeks ago, and um, it didn't appear to be on, and I wondered if it Well, um, that's, that's a good point. Um, that's the category of unintended consequences. Um, they put some beautiful fountains that come up out of the ground to the south of the main entrance, and what they didn't realize is how much... <laughs> Coeds, after drinking a little bit, loved to run through the fountains. And the opening night, we were down there, and a couple of dresses came off. And so they're trying to <laughs> figure out how to keep things civil and fun. <laughs> but but it still works. They they're trying to figure out how to control the traffic. <laughs> and they, in the inhibitions. <laughs> I, think, I think we need to end the taping now, go down there and study the situation. Mark. Yeah, let's take the cameras and okay. go down okay. and watch. Yes. <laughs> well, water-related question. Uh, didn't she um, have a, a lot to do with Confluence Park? I mean, we think about her in terms of buildings, but didn't she have a lot to do with that um, juncture of the flat in Cherry Creek? Well... She might have, but let me give you my take on this. Um, that's Wellington Webb's baby. Wellington, um, for those of you who just got here, Wellington was the mayor of Denver from 91 for three terms. He followed Federico Pena. And Wellington was really proud of, of parks. He loved parks. And he gave me a wonderful quote. He said, if you go to some cities where the back doors open on parks, they're terrible. They're full of trash. They're neglected. But if the parks are in front of the buildings, they're beautiful. They're watered. They're, they're cared for. And people enjoy them. And that was his vision of uh, the river, was to put some parks in and have the development look down on the parks. And when when the city and the RTD bought Union Station, um, I, I can't remember how many acres there are from Union Station down to the river, but a, a large development corporation, Continuum, in Seattle, they owned, um, I got this wrong and my editor straightened me out. I have a mental thing about this. Continuum owned half of the property behind Union Station. Uh, they owned the half from the river halfway up, and the city owned the other half up to the back of Union Station. And, and Mayor Webb and Ken Salazar, who was the attorney general at the time, and one other person, I think it was David Fine, the city attorney, flew to Seattle and met with Continuum's president, Larry Grace. And on a handshake, they agreed to flip ownership. And Webb got the half down by the river, and Continuum got the half right behind Union Station. 
And from there, Webb mapped out some parks and with all the planners and zoning and that arranged or had an influence on the development that would follow. So Dana, uh, maybe you're uh, thinking, she's been heavily involved with the Greenway Foundation and Jeff Shoemaker, uh, which did all the uh, bike paths and they had a big role in cleaning up the, the banks of the Platte. But the actual layout pretty much was Webb and Jennifer Moulton, his planning director. Any more questions? Don't leave me hanging. I welcome questions. Okay. Um, are there people that Dana particularly enjoyed doing business with and went back to them repeatedly? No. <laughs> Are the people she hated? No, uh, Bill Mosher has a great quote. She was like a whack-a-mole. You never knew where she was going to pop up. And I love that quote because she, um, she worked Larimer Square, then she did the Oxford Hotel, and then nothing took place for quite a while after Larimer Square. The Oxford came in 1980. She joined Charlie Calloway on that to save it from being turned into a, uh, an office building. But it wasn't until 1990 that she bought a loft building, the Ed Brook at 15th. Um, but she went up to uptown. And this is a great example of Dana's vision. She went on her own to 18th and Logan. You with me? The northwest corner is a lovely red brick, three or four story apartment building called Cooper Flats. And she bought that, and there was nothing going on in that area. And she renovated that, and I believe I give her a lot of credit for triggering the interest in other developers to come in and develop what we now call Uptown. And that whole area has been redone or rebuilt. That's where the Mar 6 is there, right? Right, right, right. Okay. all the way up to Marsix. Yeah. Um, but over to Benedict Park, which is named after my grandfather on uh, 20th. Um, that whole area from Broadway up to about Washington, or, or maybe even further up to Downing is considered uptown. And Dana really triggered that redevelopment. And it's, a, it's a, such a logical place when you stop and think about it, because you can walk downtown, you can walk to your office if you work downtown. It's and when you see the construction going on in and around Denver, the, right now, 2015, a lot of this was precipitated by what she accomplished first. Yeah. You know, what does she think of what she's seeing now where everybody's getting in on the act? Well, she'll, she'll pull her mask over and say, oh, it's wonderful. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and then you get into the Hancock administration's pro-development and yeah. let's move on. Okay. <laughs> gotcha. Let's stay happy. Nancy. Let's have fun. Uh, how, much, how much influence did, I, mean, I know she loves Savannah. She loves the what? She loves Savannah. Oh, Savannah. Right, and um, I know she spent some time there. I just wondered if there was you know, some of that influence her at all in terms of, you know, what she saw in terms of that. Developments that they've done in Savannah and historical stuff. I can't really tell you what involvement she had in Savannah. She has worked as a consultant at various depths in 50 cities in the United States. Um, and she is she's considered one of the experts. And a woman who wrote a blurb on the back of my book, Adele Chatfield Taylor, who was part of this movement to save Grand Central in New York, says Dana was just tremendous, has, has been a, a real force nationally. But for the individual cities, I, I can't answer that. I know she was involved a lot with San Antonio and the Riverwalk. She was involved in Boston with Quincy Market. Um, she had something to do with New York South Street Seaport, stuff like that. 
Um, but Savannah, I, I don't know. So, Savannah is lovely. And Charleston. Dana's a lot of self-taught, isn't it? All of it. Yeah. She was in PR. <laughs> she, she didn't even own a house when she decided to, uh, to get going on Larimer Square. So it's amazing. Yeah. She is a very smart person, very perceptive, very quick. Okay. Yes. Did she come to Denver just for the PR job after school? She didn't know where to go. She went back home to Salina to be with her parents. And, um, and she had kind of a, a, a sometime squeeze from Harvard who grew up in Denver. And he had gone back to Denver. And she was trying to figure out where to go. She thought of Kansas City or St. Louis. And this guy Fritz, uh, she liked. And they, they weren't really an item. But she decided she'd go out to Denver and give it a try. And Fritz was there. So and, and uh, they stayed friends, but it never uh, blossomed more than that. And here's the irony. Um, the Denver Post used to have a, a, a longtime editor. He was city editor. And then he became the automotive writer, John Eaton. Some of you may remember him. He's still around. They were high school, um, a couple. Uh, they were, uh, um, they went out together in, all through high school in Salina. And both of them ended up in Denver. Mm -hmm. And occasionally, they'll go out to uh, a, a drink or dinner and argue. <laughs> John's become pretty conservative, <laughs> and her, according to Dana. <laughs> what are her political leanings? She's very liberal in some areas and very conservative in others. Um, you know, uh, it, it'd take a while to delineate. Yeah. Socially, she's very liberal. Okay. I think she is. Yeah. I can hear her yelling at me. So. <laughs> What? Uh, yes. Has uh, she been accused of being a gentrifier in any way? No. Um, that's a good question. I think. I think that gentrification is part of the nature of redevelopment. You go into. Uh, uh, rundown area that's inexpensive with good bones, good architecture, good buildings, um, and redevelop it. And the price goes up. And the locals, um, she's never been accused of doing anything like that deliberately. But I think it's a byproduct of not just her work, but any redeveloper. One place she went into that, uh, that really that caused Bill Mosier to call her a whack-a-mole was she went across 20th Street and bought the old Hungarian flour mill, which was, I mean, that was out of Dresden, Germany after World War II. That place was a mess with graffiti. And, and she redid it and built another building behind it to match that or similar to it. And that was a very difficult project. When she finished that, she went across the railroad tracks toward Coors Field, if you're with me. She went east over the railroad tracks. And there was nothing in there. It was an area called Prospect. And there used to be a couple of um, wild discos, the um, Foxhole. And what was the other one? Um, tracks. Tracks. And, um, and I called it a hobo camp. There was nothing in there. And she tried to redevelop that, and it proved to be too much for her. There was no infrastructure, no sewage, no water. Uh, it was just too much. Um, but she wasn't deliberately trying to push people out. She would take advantage of cheap real estate with good bones. Are any of her sons in business with her? Her oldest son, Jack, um, is a wizard 
in finances. Uh, he, went to the, uh, he went to Brown and then to the London School of Economics and he wrote for the Financial Times of London and then finally came back to Denver and he's still involved with her. Okay. She has four sons. Yeah. Nancy? Um, does she have any um, work ahead of her in terms of five points? Not that I know of. Uh, I was telling bef earlier before you came in um, that she's got a, a terrific project up in Idaho Springs. Oh, I'm sorry. And she is working in Broomfield. She tried to get into Cheyenne, and that didn't go right. Uh, a few other places. But I don't know of anything in Five Points. So it could be, but I don't know about it. We have just a couple minutes left if, if you have more questions. Well, let me ask you this. What, what is your marketing campaign for this book now that it's out? What are you going to be doing? Um, every day I get out of bed and say, what am I going to do today? I really am trying to figure this one out, and I've been talking to a lot of authors. Self-publishing, um, it's difficult. I, I don't know exactly what to do. Tattered Cover has been so supportive, um, and other bookstores have been terrific. You know, I'm going into Molly Brown House and History Colorado and just trying to think of where people might be interested in this book. Um, one thing that I would like to add, if you don't mind, Go ahead. Um, is this is a great story about a great woman who really made a large contribution to the develop, redevelopment of Denver. But it's, along the way, it's got a tremendous amount of history of Denver from 1950 forward. And, and I, I was born up in Aspen, but I grew, grew up essentially here in Denver. So I'm not a native of Denver, but I've been here. Um, it was fascinating for me to learn looking back how Denver developed from the 50s. And uh, it was Federico Pena who really got the ball moving. And I had no idea about that. Um, there had been, I don't want to bore everybody, but Denver in the 60s was put under federal uh, court orders uh, for forced busing of high school students. And the white family started fleeing outside of Denver. And they would go just beyond the border of Denver to uh, unincorporated areas. And Denver started annexing these properties and to get them back in. And Frida Poundstone was a, li uh, a lobbyist. Yeah. She wrote the Poundstone Amendment, which passed. It, it became a constitutional amendment, prohibiting Denver from annexing anything else. That was Denver's boundary, unless the people to be annexed would approve of it. And the only annexation Denver has made since then was for DIA. Um, but the Poundstone Amendment set the boundary for Denver. Uh, Federico came into office and he said, we need to grow. We don't know where. And he looked at 4,600 acres on the South Platte River Valley and it was producing $40,000 in taxes, and that was it. That's nothing. That's pocket change. And so he instituted the move to get rid of all the railroad tracks and to remove the, the elevated concrete viaducts that used to go across, and really started to clean up. And Wellington uh, finished the job. And that was the start of what we see today below Union Station. And I just think it's a wonderful history of our town. Um, last chance for question? When can we expect the, uh, the book on your grandfather, uh, Benedict? And, uh, and do you want a deadline? Would that help you finish? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you want to come in and yell at him? Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. I'll give you my card. Um, I have uh, quite a bit of work done on it. And um, I made friends with an architect in Paris 
who wrote a wonderful book called Paris Reborn, when they rebuilt Paris under Haussmann. And um, he captured it beautifully. He came to Denver, and I took him around to some of the Benedict buildings. Benedict studied in Paris at Ecole des Beaux-Arts. And this guy, Stefan, also studied at Ecole des Beaux-Arts. And, and we went into some of the churches, and he just could look up and tell me exactly what Benedict was doing. And I'm not an architect, so it's over my pay grade. He's agreed to co-write the book with me. And I'll do the sense of place and time and the, and the person and the community. And he's going to put a little uh, piece in about the architecture of each building. There are 60 buildings remaining of 80 that were built. So I think, to answer your question, a couple of years will be out, I hope. Well, Mike, thanks so much oh, thank for you. meeting us tonight. And congratulations on this great book. I would urge uh, folks to get it a tattered cover. Where else can they get it? Uh, I'm getting into Barnes & Noble. That's difficult, because it's a, such a local book. Um, City Stacks on 17th and YZ. Okay. Um, Molly Brown. The Bookies out on Colorado. I'm trying to get into almost every small independent bookstore. I'm not on Amazon because I'm supporting the locals. Um, and people will go in and photograph the ISBN number and then buy it at a discount on Amazon. And I just don't want that to happen for a while. Yeah. But um, it would make a terrific Christmas present. Keep that in mind. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> well, again, the show is sponsored by the Denver Press Club and the Colorado chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists. And we urge viewers, if you want to hear more about Denver Press Club events, go to www.denverpressclub.org. Thank you.